I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. Today I have Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. She is all the things. She's got all the degrees. She is an obesity, uh, fellowship-trained obesity specialist at Mass General, which is Harvard. For those of you who don't know that, it's kind of like the cream of the crop in terms of medicine. Um, she is an associate at the Dispar- uh, Disparity Solutions Center. She does a lot of work in physician well-being as well, which we haven't even gotten into um, in our side conversation. And also, an, uh, I'm not quite native Atlantan, but I moved here when I was two months old, and she's also a native Atlantan. So we're both Georgia, Georgia gals. Um, Dr. Stanford, it is so, so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for letting me be here and, and really to talk about it, these very important issues surrounding COVID-19, race, obesity. I think these are issues that are particularly germane to what we're dealing with now, but these are issues that we need to be discussing outside of the context of just this current pandemic. And so I want to make sure that I can do whatever I can to raise awareness, begin the conversation, actually be a part of the solutions. So thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful. So, um, you know, a lot of these interviews, I feel like people are stuck in their bubbles. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're dealing with their own pain and stress right now. And it's really hard to think about the world outside, I think. And, right. and a lot of people have the privilege of being able to shut that out if they need to um, before and, and, and before COVID and, and now during COVID. Um, and so I guess first I'd like you to tell me, tell uh, the, the, my audience, our audience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what you do and also why it's important for people uh, to, to get their heads out of their bubbles right now, even if it feels uncomfortable. Um, why it's so important for us to learn about these, these disparities um, and the systemic issue that's been going on that's now leading to this um, magnification in COVID. Right. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important for us to realize that we're more interconnected than we want to believe and that we're more similar than we'd like to believe. And so if we're treating people um, or delivering poor care to one subset of the population, and particularly um, African-American or Black population, non-Hispanic Black population here in the U.S., that, that really is concerning about just, you know, your moral standing and your ability to connect with your neighbors. So, what we've noticed is we're practicing social distancing, right? So that's part of, of what we're doing. Although I've heard um, in Georgia, um, there's been a move, a shift away from that, despite the fact that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who has set some of these major guidelines, resides right in the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're seeing is that social distance has created this idea of social isolation. Mm-hmm. And as people are having to spend more time in their homes, you know, with their immediate families, or even if they are or live by themselves, how do they connect? How do they begin to think about what life is like post this pandemic that has affected us in ways that we've never seen um, in our, not only our lifetimes as, as um, you know, people that are in our, a little bit younger, but in our parents, in our grandparents' lifetimes. No one's ever experienced anything quite like this. And so we really need to do a deep dive to understand that many of the issues that we're seeing play out in our current day-to-day um, evaluations of what we're seeing in media, what we're seeing in healthcare, really are 
based upon what's been going on in this country for years. A lot of people saw this magnified when we saw Katrina, when we were looking at the people that were on the, the roofs of houses looked much like myself. These were my people. Um, we looked at that as an isolated situation. Oh, that's just what's going on in New Orleans. But now here we're seeing this play out throughout the entire country. This is not a pandemic that just affected Atlanta or Boston, where I'm based. It affected all of us. And what we're seeing is disparate outcomes for those communities that have faced issues such as structural racism for since the beginning of our arrival here in the United States. Um, you know, there's simple things that people don't even recognize they're doing to continue to um, perpetuate um, these issues. Something as simple as people ask me often, well, where are you from? And I'm saying, you know, I'm from Atlanta, but no, no, but where are you from? And I'm like, well, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. My parents also were from Atlanta and they're like, well, no, but where are you from? And so then I answer, and this usually gets people to stop asking me questions. Well, via some slave ship to the Southern portion of the United States, um, and then people are like, oh, well, that's the reality. And, and the reality is, is if we do all these lovely um, ancestry or 23andMe um, things, I can tell you my ancestry, whatever that is, changes drastically from, from month to month. You know, sometimes it says I'm 40% Nigerian, then it goes to 0% Nigerian because really nobody knows, right? The, the reality mm -hmm. is, is that that identity that I potentially have, I don't know what that is because that was stripped from me that serves as the basis for what we're seeing. Like, who are we and why as someone that's of color that really the, the, this country was built on our backs, why should I face different level of care when I show up, even at my, my own hospital, because I look the way I do? And what we're seeing is that that's exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll stop there because I can keep going, but this is, this is exactly what we're seeing. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there. No, so much, sorry. so much to unpack. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine yeah. and I can't remember it was, um, she was talking to a cousin who was from like literally from Nigeria mm -hmm. and I don't remember what exactly he said, but it, it was something about, oh, why, why would you want to be in an all black something? And this oh. is a black man saying this to her. And she's like, well, cause I feel he said, if I wanted to do that, I would just go back to Nigeria. And she's like, well, I don't have that. I don't know where I'm from. So I don't have a home to go to. So right. I need to create that here. And that was right. so, so impactful for me to right. hear um, just on a different level than you normally hear people Absolutely. talking about. Um, so it's interesting that you're, that you're bringing up a, a similar point there. Um, so, so we're all connected. Um, we all theoretically this virus affects everybody it, it can infect everybody the same mm -hmm. um some of the risk factors that we've heard for people getting sicker are diabetes obesity mm -hmm. um hypertension underlying conditions that a lot of patients of color people of color do have absolutely. in our country but it's not as simple as it seems so can you go a little bit more oh, into absolutely what are the risk factors and it's not just poverty it goes beyond oh that, absolutely i mean if we're looking i mean i think you brought up a lot of key ones um obesity if you look i mean cdc has put severe obesity um and that's body mass indexes of greater than or equal to 40. um i i want to kind of refute that a little bit i think it's obesity as a whole meaning people that have bmis or body mass index greater than or equal to 30. Okay. Um, we have um, lung disease, people that have a history of like chronic asthma or lung disease are um, disproportionately impacted. People that have a history of chronic kidney disease, which we know disproportionately impacts um, communities of color. 
um, are affected, diabetes. Um, and there, you know, the, the list goes on in terms of key, but I, I just brought up a lot of the, the really kind of key ones that stand out. But let's, let's talk about this in relation to racial and ethnic minorities. And as a fellowship trained obesity medicine physician, you might think that I would probably go there. I believe that obviously obesity um, is the cause of many of these downstream um, issues. And so what we do know um, is that 42.4% of US adults have the disease of obesity, okay? Now, when we look at that, that's a large number, and that's based on 2017 data, which is the most recent data that's available to us through the CDC. Mm -hmm. But I want to take that a little bit further and look at how this disease of obesity disproportionately affects communities of color, particularly um, persons of non-Hispanic Black descent or African-American, however you want to look at that. That's typically how the, the medical literature does. And then those that are of Hispanic origin. So if we're looking at, and I'm gonna pull out just my cohort as a black woman, I'm gonna speak about my group. We're looking at um, the percentage of obesity amongst black women. We're looking at approximately 60% of black women have the disease of obesity here in the United States. Another 20% have been considered or have overweight. And notice I'm saying have, they don't, they're not, we're not gonna define them by that. This is just what they have. So we're talking about 80% of black women, if I'm gonna pull out that cohort, have overweight and obesity. That means that only 20% don't, which means that for those of us that fall in that cohort, we are considered the minority. But what we do know about obesity is that the inflammation associated with obesity, the disease, I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not a label. This is an actual disease process where the hypothalamus, which is in the brain, regulates weight and weight regulation. The inflammation associated with obesity predisposes to worse outcomes as it relates to COVID-19. We're talking about morbidity, meaning sickness, and mortality, meaning death. So if we look at inflammation, which we've seen in other pandemics like H1N1, other pandemics that we've seen, um, and you look at persons that have obesity, they have inflammatory markers. I'm going to name a few of those. You don't, guys don't have to remember these, but this is just to show you that I know what I'm talking about. So we're looking at things like CRP, C-reactive protein, IL-1, um, which is interleukin-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, which is tumor necrosis factor alpha. You don't have to remember these things, but these are markers that show inflammation in the body. And what we do know is that if you have obesity, these are heightened. What we also know, tying this picture together as we're looking at racism, is that if you look at studies like the Jackson Heart Study, persons that internalized or felt racism had higher levels of inflammation also. So when we tie together this idea or notion that patients that experience racism, and let me tell you guys, I have four degrees and I work at Harvard, but I experience it every day. When you experience that racism, increases inflammation, obesity increases inflammation. So who are the people that are going to get sicker and die? People who experience racism, plus people who have obesity, compounded with these other comorbid conditions, i.e. Um, heart disease, kidney disease, lung disease. You can imagine that going into this pandemic with this virus that we're still figuring out all of its pathophysiology is just going to worsen our outcome. So what, what, I, what we're seeing across the country, not at all a surprise to me. Um, but I can tell you that on the national level, I've been working on this as the vice chair of the Minority Affairs Section for the American Medical Association every single week, meeting about how we can get the data out, how we can think about how we address this systemically Mm -hmm. so that we began to, to, to scratch the surface. The problem is, is that many of the people doing this work look like me. And not always are people that look like me 
those persons in power to really make significant changes on the ground. Um, and so I invite others that don't look like me, that don't live, eat and breathe this life every day to be part of that conversation, to really shift the needle so, so that we don't see these disparate outcomes and future pandemics, which are sure to come. Mm -hmm. So what do you think underlies, uh, you've just given me so much to think about, and I don't think I knew that that the, I, that the experience of racism increased inflammatory markers. I hadn't seen data on that. So that's yeah, Look at the Jackson Heart mind. Study. I think the Jackson Heart Study did a very good job. Um, the Black Women's um, Health Study also has shown some of that data. Very few um, data cohorts have enough um, racial and minorities to really make that story, but both the Jackson Heart and the Black Women's Health Study have been able to. Okay. So what, what can you explain what your thoughts on why there's such a high rate of obesity and you mentioned your cohort in, in black women overweight and obesity up to 80 percent what what are the factors leading to that because I, I i would hope that no one would think it's like oh black women just eat too much or like right. you know like it's not yeah. there's so much more to it than that but some people might actually think that like it's their they might so let's let's let's, let's teach them this is this is what i do all day every day so let's <laughs> teach them so it's important to realize that, that obesity is multifactorial. There's different factors that play a role, genetics, environment, behavior, et cetera, play a role. But let's, I'm gonna start with the genetic piece because I think that's very important because I really think that the largest contribution to overweight and obesity is genetics. What I'm going to say as a statement that I'm gonna repeat twice so that you can internalize it, and that is that weight is more heritable than height. Okay, so I'm gonna say that once more. Weight is more heritable than height. So if you have two parents that happen to be tall, let's say you have a mom who's six feet tall and a dad who's six feet eight, we presume that the offspring, i.e. the children, will be tall. Like they, the likelihood that they have a four foot nine child is pretty low. It could happen, but pretty low, right? Weight is more heritable height. Then, so if we just told you that about 60% of black women, and I just focus on that group because I can't go through every data statistic and finish the interview. If 60% of black women have obesity, and I told you weight is more heritable than height, meaning that between 60 to 80% of obesity will be passed off. If I am a woman that has obesity and I'm going into pregnancy with that obesity, my offspring, no matter how lovely I do when they actually get here, meaning I breastfeed them for the first year of life and putting on my pediatrician hat here, um, I make sure that they're getting whole foods, not whole foods, the, the store, but actual whole foods, yeah. lean protein, whole grape, fruits, vegetables as their primary source of solids, et cetera. I can't fix the fact that they came through, but they had the genetic predisposition to obesity, which means that when they hit the growth chart at the age of two, they already have obesity. Not because of anything I did once they got here, it was before they were conceived. It was the hand they were dealt. So when we're looking at this high predisposition to obesity within the black community, if we're looking at already starting with moms and dads that have obesity, we're gonna pass it on to the kids. But it's important to realize that there's another piece of the puzzle in that genetic piece. We talk about the genetics of mom and dad passing on to child, right? What about the grandparents? And you're like, okay, Dr. Tamper, what is she talking about? What does the grandparents have to do anything? When the grandmother, let's say, gets pregnant with the, uh, a, a, a female, um, she has all, the, all, all of the eggs that she will need to then produce life from then on, right? So we're born as a woman, mm -hmm. as a girl, we're born with all of the eggs that we need, which means that if the grandmother had obesity, she's now affecting the grandchild. 
if that mom decides to give birth. I mean, you know, if she decides to give birth. And so it's generational and it's passed on, not just based upon what someone's eating, but actually what, what the body habitus is once they are coming through. And the mom and dad are both contributors. There's an amazing study that I usually talk about when I'm giving talks that shows the difference in offspring um, born to a mom pre and post her having bariatric surgery. So what they did was they looked 20 years into the future, we call a prospective study of mom and dad, say mom and dad, mom gives birth to older child for per, per, bariatric surgery, and then gives birth to second child after bariatric surgery. What we saw or what they saw in that study that came out in 2008 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism is that children that were born post-mom having bariatric surgery had a three-fold decrease in severe obesity. At the time of birth, there was an eight-fold decrease in macrosomia, which means babies that are born with big bodies. All of the hormonal profiles, insulin, glucose, ghrelin, ghrelin is a hormone that stimulates hunger, all of those were fixed, what did I say fixed, but were significantly improved in the second child. Notice, in this situation, the genetics was not different. We have the same mom and dad contributing to this child that is formed. So the genetics is the same, but we've informed or changed mom. And what we do know is that mothers that have obesity, even if they go to bariatric surgery, still have obesity often, but it's a much milder form. So look at just how that major change has an impact on the next generation. Um, I can keep going, but I think that it's important for us to recognize genetics as a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to discredit that behaviors play a role. We do look at diet quality. The less processed the foods, the better it is. Processed foods tend to taste better. They're more palatable, but they also aren't very filling and they can contribute to more energy storage, meaning more adipose, which is fat tissue that stores on us. Physical activity does vary sometimes when you're looking at racial and ethnic minorities. And let me tell you, as a black woman who has not had my hair done, I am very upset about it. Because, but, but, but I can tell you that, you know, one of the, um, when, um, Regina Benjamin was a Surgeon General of the United States. One of the things that she mentioned was that black women are, may modify their activity because their hair may not be done. And, and people kind of like had a lot of backlash. That's not right. But let me tell you, all the black women, we were looking, oh yes, absolutely. Like if something is wrong with their hair, like, you know, do we're gonna work out, you know, do I need to, to sweat? Do I, you know, there are some modifications that may occur um, associated with something of that sort. So that, that is indeed um, the case. So we talked about genetics. We talked about like diet, physical activity, stress, stress um, confers a risk for obesity. So we talked about stress. Racism is a form of stress. Stress in terms of, you know, financial means or these things increase inflammation. It increases retention of adipose, which is fat. So when we had stress traditionally, um, if you look at us from an evolutionary perspective, stress meant that we needed to store body fat to prepare for a famine. Our stressors these days aren't typically a famine. Mm -hmm. It's typically that, oh, I need to pay the bills or, ooh, you know, I'm stressed about a relationship or I'm stressed about whatever it is. But when we, when we have that chronic stress, chronic racism, our bodies don't recognize that a famine isn't coming. So it goes into storage mode. It decides, hey, let's hold on to this adipose, this fat tissue, because I need this, because the storm is coming. The storm is just a different storm. And so while our bodies have not typically evolved significantly, because everybody always asks me, well, you know, we haven't evolved much. No, we haven't evolved much, but our environment around us has evolved. Um, so that plays a role. 
a few other things I wanted to throw up. Sleep quality duration plays a large role in how the body regulates weight. And then medications that we as doctors prescribe can cause significant increases in weight. I just um, published a study that's coming out looking at the entire women's health initiative, so all postmenopausal women, and looking at medications that can cause weight gain um, and lead to obesity that often we as doctors don't go back and evaluate whether or not they're needed. I'm going to list a quick list of that. I'm going to stop and let um, you ask me a question. But this, these are going to include medications such as lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexa, Cymbalta, Effexor, Paxil, Prozac, Ambient, Trazodone, Lunestic, Gabapentin, Glyburide, Glipizide, Glimepiride, long-term insulin, long-term prednisone, just to name a few of drugs that we know predispose to large degrees of weight gain. So I'll stop there. And so for people who are listening who aren't medical, those are psychiatric drugs, diabetes, pills to treat diabetes. Beta or, blockers, um, steroids. Um, yeah. Actually, I didn't mention the antihistamines. Many of the sleep agents, um, a lot of these things that affect how the hypothalamus, which really is the central regulator of weight, how it sees weight. So, um, but a lot of times I can tell you, I, I will evaluate a patient that may be on a med that they may or may not, you know, like let's say they did need to be on it but I could have counteracted it with another medication to mitigate the degree of weight gain associated with it. And sometimes there are medications that they don't really need and just taking away a medicine or two may lead to large degrees of weight gain. And I can tell you, I'm mean, weight loss, I'm sorry. I can tell you that one of my hairstylists here in Boston, that exactly is what happened. She was diagnosed with um, depression and went on a drug called mirtazapine, which is a drug that can lead to weight gain. It's used for um, weight gain. I mean, they, that's used a exactly. lot in patients who are like, like have cancer wasting syndromes and stuff. That, exactly. I'm surprised that I was she started shocked. on that. I was, yeah. I was shocked. So I came in and I was listening to her because when you're getting your hair done, you can't really do anything but to listen or, I mean, I usually bring my laptop along for the ride too. Um, and so she's like, yeah, you know, I was doing this medicine, I've gained this weight. And I was like, really? Why did they choose that one? I, you know, I would have never chosen that one. I said, well, let me tell you this. Why don't you go back and get put on this alternative agent? So I recommended that she get put on bupropion um, or Wellbutrin mm -hmm. um, as a first line for any patients that may struggle with weight. I, I would simply go there. And so she did that. When I went back to get my hair done 12 weeks later, she had lost 22 pounds. I felt like she should have given me my hair free for the rest of the year. Um, but you can see that literally she said I did nothing differently. All I did was got, I've, I've written a note for her on the back of like one of my business cards to take to her doctor. The doctor made the switch. Um, and here she was 22 pounds lighter, um, secondary to just one modification. So I think Amazing, this shows yeah. you that, that this is not just, ooh, patient blaming or, oh, it's your fault. Yes. Can we fix, you know, diet quality? Yes. Can we fix physical activity? Yes. And I do recommend always starting with those behavioral modifications absolutely first. But once I get beyond that and you still have severe obesity, do I just blame you for having your severe obesity or do I come up with interventions that could help you achieve a healthier weight? And that's my, my job. My job yeah. is to be the coach. You are the quarterback. If you understand football, you are the, you know, the, the leader of the team, the point guard, if you're in basketball, whatever, whatever sport you want to play, we can, we can go there, but I am there to coach and help you be your best self to let you know about all of the wonderful therapies that we have available to help you be your best self. So, okay. So now looking at like in COVID, mm -hmm. um, there's a higher amount of obesity. So COVID is now affecting people. And there's all sorts of other, and, and I mean, it all comes back to racism that, that for a lot of people don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I didn't used to understand this either until like mm -hmm. a, 
sadly short time ago, not like last week, but <laughs> recently. I but it. I made it into my 40s thinking this, yeah. that racism was about a person's beliefs. It was about a, a person's biases or prejudices or mm -hmm. whatever, but I didn't understand at all that it was the system. And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand that. And, mm -hmm. and they th see racism is like, you're a racist, you're a not, you're not right. racist. I voted for Obama, <laughs> therefore I'm not. I right. elected a black president, therefore yeah. it's okay. I like Hamilton, therefore I'm not. You know, like <laughs> ridiculous things like that. But then yeah. it makes sense in the moment until you yeah. learn about that there's a whole other like parallel universe mm -hmm. of existence for people who are not white in this country. Exactly. Um, and it, it, which fluctuates depending on your race cate um, Absolutely. categorization, Hands which down. are of yeah. course not... They're arbitrary, but they are what exists. Um, so some groups may have more difficult times than other um, avoiding being marginalized or, or oh, not being as much and as much um, yes uh, without having the deck stacked against them as much. But but so how how is COVID bringing to light? some of those bigger systemic issues and what are some of those systemic issues? Absolutely. In I addition to racism, you said, you yeah. said racism, but like specifically, mm -hmm. like let's dive in there a little bit. Yeah, let's dive in. I'm going to, I like to use examples because I think it illustrates it better. Um, one of my um, mentees, current mentees, unfortunately just lost her father um, in COVID-19 on Easter Sunday oh, no. um, for those that um, practice Easter. And um, she, one of the key things that we talked about um, right after her, her father passed, um, he was Haitian Creole and spoke Creole as his primary language, um, which you do know if you guys have been paying attention to COVID-19 and, and the, what's going on is that they're not allowing visitors, they're not, you know, there's a lot that's happening. She's an internal medicine doctor, so well-trained to understand COVID-19, well-trained to understand what's necessary on the ground. But as someone not being able to visit, because you're not supposed to visit, how does she advocate for her father, whose primary language is not English, who often doesn't understand much about his health and his health care? And she feels very strongly, and I, I um, agree with her, that his inadequate care in the healthcare setting really had to do with these factors. Um, even when you are a native English speaker, I can tell you, having been inpatient, um, as a doctor, um, that often I'm not believed um, or what I'm saying is not credible. So you can imagine with having the degree of education I have in comparing someone that may not, that they're immediately discredited if they say they have certain symptoms or um, there's also this conjecture that black people are stronger so we can deal with pain better or we can deal with other things just because of, of these um, widely held beliefs um, and so this plays out in healthcare, right? So we see that people, um, you know, may delay seeking care because of mistrust of the system, because when they are there, they're not treated well. I can tell you one of my residents just this weekend went to, um, to go into the hospital to be seen as a patient, even though she's a resident and um, someone tried to hand her the trash and she's like, whoa, like, but that's not, that's not outside of the realm of what happens to, to my residents um, that are people of color. This is, I mean, but she's, a, she's a, someone with, you know, three degrees who's a resident here at Harvard, but who went into a Harvard hospital and it wasn't her primary hospital. And this is exactly what people hand her the trash and she, she's dressed nicely. She has actually wore her badge. Um, and I can tell you that this is, this is what happens. And so when we see that interplay, um, it's, it's, it's very important. Um, 
people, a lot of people know me by the story that happened on, happened on Delta Airlines in 2018, where I was the doctor that was on the airlines that was not believed to be a doctor, even after presenting my medical license on two different occasions to the flight attendants. Um, that story did make news in 104 countries, but the idea that I could be there actually was dressed very nicely. I usually like to wear my athleisure gear, so people think I'm in my 20s. I am not, as you guys may have guessed. Um, but I actually had on my suit, I was really annoyed that I didn't get a chance to change because I had a very important meeting coming out of Indianapolis back into Boston. And even after showing my license on twice, um, twice um, being asked, well, is this really my license? So you can be, you know, the idea of this idea of racism is that there, you don't even believe the people that are like, quote unquote, of or, or meet the criteria of a general acceptance. So you can imagine that for many of our people that may have lower socioeconomic status, may have lower education, may not be able to communicate things in the way that's acceptable to the medical community, that we are seeing this play out um, such that they either are like just delaying going to the hospital until the absolute last possible, um, like when they just really can't do anything else because they're avoiding that. And then when they get there, not being treated um, adequately. And, and, and I can tell you being inpatient um, here in the city um, as, a, as a patient, um, not for COVID-19, but for other issues that that the, the, the struggle is real and, and in this experience, and even if you're able to, to, to speak the language, and even if you're able to advocate for yourself, you're still receiving disparate care. And that's what we're seeing play out in COVID-19, unfortunately, yeah. at, a, at, a, at a magnified level. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality. Um, and we're seeing that play out, you know, if we're looking at um, the Latino community, because I think we do have to talk about them for und undocumented immigrants, or even those that are, you know, documented, you know, the fear of, of potentially facing repercussions for seeking care will delay care or, um, you know, I guess predispose them to not being treated equally within the system. So I think that we're seeing that play out um, both in the Black and Latino communities, um, but probably a little bit more prominently within in the Black community as we're seeing with the current COVID data that's coming out. What, what do you think, so given it's all there, it's all been there, it's just louder now. Right. Um, what, what can people do mm -hmm. to, uh, we were talking about your, your student who, who had this great post uh, on social media mm -hmm. um, about like how like once, once, the, once the crisis has passed, there'll, there'll be like a slide mentioned, uh, you know, the whole presentation about COVID, there'll be one slide about health disparities. Mm -hmm. And and there will be people who believe that that's all it was was one slide during COVID. Um, what what can we do to prevent that from happening? We being society, we being people who mm -hmm. look like me. Um, mm -hmm. Is it is it just an attitude shift? Are there actions that we can take? Like, oh no, I think I think we need to take actions. I think that we have to recognize that we need to begin to evaluate not just in the midst of COVID, which I think there's a lot of disparities research that you're going to see come out of the COVID nineteen, where individual hospitals or healthcare systems or countries begin to look at like what are we doing or not doing. That's great. We can publish it in a journal, but what are we going to do about it? How are we going to begin to say, oh my goodness, we're recognizing that when blacks are admitted to our hospital. They are, it's taking them less time. I mean, it's taking them more time to get into an, um, a room if they need to get admitted. It's taking them more time to get into the ICU if they need to get admitted, which means their care is delayed, which means their outcomes are worsened. We need to begin to evaluate that and actually operationalize that on a larger scale. So American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, but it's not just the medical side of the world. We have to be thinking about how this permeates into 
the greater community, what happens at the business level, why are all of the frontline providers, people that only look like me, that then get, you know, have a higher likelihood of getting sick because of exposure, because they're not receiving adequate, um, you know, personal protective equipment to protect themselves as of someone that works at the grocery store who works on public transportation. You know, this, this really has to be every single person, every single um, industry thinking about how we need to treat this outside of the context of a pandemic. Because in the pandemic, there's only so much we can do, right? There, there's, we're limited, um, we can study it, but then we need to think, okay, well, the next pandemic is coming, something else is coming. But even the day-to-day, -day, what we're experiencing as, as persons of color when we seek healthcare needs to change. Um, and that changes by changing all of these different facets of society. It's not just healthcare. It's not just politics. It's not just business. It's all of us coming together to mm -hmm. recognize that this is indeed a problem. We know it's a problem. So we actually have to look at our individual respective industries and bring together um, strategies step by step. We don't, we're not going to fix this overnight. We're not going to fix this in five years or 10 years, even 20 years or probably in my lifetime. But if we begin to take actionable steps, measurable steps to change this narrative, I think that we can have some good progress. Do you have any, someone from home watches, watches this video and they're just like, oh my God, what do I do? I can't believe I didn't see this all this time. I want, I want to make the changes. Is there, are there first steps people can take from home? And it's well, like first a, of all, I think it's important but, for, no, no, I think it's a, it's a good question. I think one of the key things I would do is look at my own biases, both implicit and explicit, implicit biases are um, those biases we have no idea exist. Some of the things you talked about when we started and then explicit are those ones we know we have. Ooh, I'm gonna walk a little bit further away from that person because I think that they might you know, do something negative towards me. Um, taking something like the Harvard IAT, which is the Implicit Associations Test, is free, it's online. You can go and take the Harvard IAT for different things. You can take it for looking at weight. You can take it for looking at race, gender, different, um, things and get a sense of like, ooh, am I really biased? Oh, I had no idea. So kind of first start with yourself. Look at yourself because if you don't know anything about yourself, kind of how are we going to fix it? Mm -hmm. So once you do that deep dive and kind of look at yourself and realize, ooh, wow, I have biases I didn't know existed, then begin to work on your individual level, but within your own individual community, right? Because everything starts locally. So let's say you're a person that works at a nonprofit agency and you've never really thought about how you might be perpetuating some of these issues that lead to um, disparate outcomes. You begin, but you first have to evaluate yourself before you then evaluated your personal organization. And even if you don't have a prominent role, let's say you're not in a leadership role, but you can think about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis that may be influencing these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then you begin to then have that proliferate. If you do happen to have a larger role, let's say you have a very prominent role with an organization, it is indeed, um, your responsibility to begin to look at this, not just over in the disparities group or ooh, just get a VP of equity to check a box that we did something, actually make it part of the culture. And I can tell you, and basically everywhere I've been, I've never seen that happen. There's like this one cohort of people that look like me that do this work and then we're supposed to make it all, all right for everyone. When mm -hmm. we're not the ones that really are, are the problem, right? Like we, it needs to be the greater community um, I can tell you when I came on faculty here, and I hope this person does hear this, 
Um, I um, bring a lot of different things. I have a you know, bachelor's of science in anthropology and homology, um, anthropology and homology. I have a master's of public health and health policy management. I have an MD degree. I have a master's of public administration and government. I've done two residencies in trauma medicine and pediatrics. I've done two fellowships, orthopedic surgery, sports medicine, and obesity medicine. So just a few things, you know, just to just rattle those off quickly. So I said to him, and maybe I should have used a different word, but I'm not going to, I'm actually not going to penalize myself here. And I said to him, well, I don't, I don't think that you recognize the diversity I bring to this role. And he said, well, I don't see you as a black woman. I said, well, that's, that's extremely oh, interesting because that's, that that's not what I was saying. Um, I'm, I'm aware that I'm a black woman. I've obviously mentioned that a few times. And in case you haven't noticed, that's what I am. If you're confused, I was talking about those different skill sets that I brought to the role. I'm a person that can care for both pediatric and adult patients across this continuum as one of the few fellowship trained obesity medicine physicians in the country. Yet the first thing this person said to me was, I don't see you as a black woman, which indeed that was exactly only how he saw me, mm -hmm. not for all of those things. And so he still didn't, even after I called him out on that, recognize that he was contributing to this issue and that I could still have this conversation with you many years after coming on faculty here because I remember it. And so I internalize that bias directly. And it's just one of many, mm -hmm. but it's something that like, that was the first thing that he said. So think about those things that you might do and not recognize how they're affecting that person because you've never had to think about it. It's the privilege that you have to not have to think all day, every day about how you're being perceived or received and or treated unjustly. And so I think that that's important. And I think that you can begin to do that, starting with looking at yourself and, and doing the individual work in your own space. And hopefully that will permeate throughout society. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's such a, a great perspective to the, because racism is systemic and it is, it's and cool. it is on an individual right. level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and to be honest, I mean, a couple things. I, I, racism is so pervasive in our society that even people of color are racialized in it. So they right, have exactly. biases against their own. And this isn't, these are not my words. I'm, I'm quoting. No, no, this is, this is definitely it. I mean, like, you know, like there is, you know, whether you're of lighter complexion, so you're more accepted, mm -hmm. um, you know, for those that are unaware, there used to be a, a brown paper bag test. If you were lighter than a brown paper bag, then you were more socially acceptable. Um, I am not lighter than a brown, uh, you guys, if you can't see me on the on video, I'm not lighter than a brown paper bag, but that was, that was supposed to be, you were of a higher stature. It was even, if you look at slavery, um, if the master happened to have a child with um, a black woman, that um, child became a house slave um, mm -hmm. because they were lighter and more socially accepted. Um, whereas the filled slaves were people that were more my complexion. Um, and so this dynamic uh, between even us within our own community has, has separated us into, oh, they're better and I'm worse. If you believe that and if you, if you internalize that. And, and so we, in, within our own communities, we struggle. Um, and so it's important for us to recognize that too, that we can contribute to the problem. And so we have to look at it our own selves. And I, I recognize that I always am doing my own internal work. Um, as a Christian, um, the Bible says, physician heal thyself. And so I am constantly trying to do things to make sure I am being the best self I can be, because that is what people are um, getting from me. If, if I'm not being my best self, 
then I need to, to do a deep dive in, internally and say, okay, you know, Fatima, here's the check. Check on yourself and, and make sure you're doing that well. Yeah. And that's interesting because I think that's probably in the most succinct way I've ever heard it, yeah. why I've gotten into this work. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm all about like discovering, you know, self-discovery. You can't do that and not be the best version of yourself and, and, and not expand your, your view of your world. And, and for me, I think as a, as a white person trying to learn about racism, for me, it was very like, oh, everyone has bias. It, it's, it's, you can't help it. Like it, it's not yeah. what you do with it. You can help, but, but just having it doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. Um, it's what you do to, to realize it and counteract it. And kind of the more you realize you have it, the more you see it. Absolutely. Which can be very upsetting, but then you can, I think, eventually move past that. But it's like, if you're pregnant, then all of a sudden you see pregnant women everywhere. Like right. you have, you're in that consciousness. <laughs> you become aware. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You become aware. Um, all right. Well, well, I, have to, I have yes, to depart. We've run a long time. I, yes. But I um, want to thank you so much for having me, for letting my voice be heard. Um, I think that this work is, is important work and it's work that I believe that I was put here to do, to look across these, these broad areas mm -hmm. um, and really begin to not only have the conversation, begin to um, work towards change. And so I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to do this work, to let my voice be heard. Um, it has been a deed of pleasure. Thank you so much. Can you tell us quickly how people can like find you and follow oh, you and learn from you? Um, I would say that for the professionals, LinkedIn is, is where I, I shine. Um, so That's I'm very I'm professional. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn is, is probably where, so Fatima Cody Stanford, I'm the only one in the entire world. It's very easy to find me um, for better or for worse. Um, for those that want to follow me on Twitter, F Stanford MD um, is, so Stanford like university, F-S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D-M-D. Um, is the way to find me. But if you just Google my name, Harvard Fatima, like 20 million literally things will pop up in 0 0.002 seconds. Um, I'd love to, you know, have this conversation. I love to come and talk um, to people about these issues that range from looking at obesity as obviously a disease, which I enjoy talking about, disparities, um, issues that are surrounding the greater policy conversations surrounding the interplay of disease, disparities, illness, um, that's, that's what I really like to do. And so I'm very open to those opportunities, open to collaboration with research, um, open to really making a difference. This is not, you know, this is not the end of this work for me. This is the work that I continue for the rest of my life. Um, and I believe I was put here to do this and I'm willing to help collaborate around the, around the country, around the world as I've done and continue that. Making new connections, I think is extremely important. I can't do this by myself. Jill, you can't do this by yourself, but we are two pieces of the puzzle to make change. Awesome. Well, Dr. Sanford, you are a powerhouse, and it was just such a, a pleasure to talk to you and, and hear the way your my brain thinks. The way your brain thinks, and and I, I've learned so much from uh, just from this, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes that we've been talking. And again, thank you so much um, for for joining me. Well, stay in touch, Jill. I, I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay, I'll speak to you okay. later. Bye bye. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.